Hello, I'm Ian Madison, a fellow in the International Development Department and the producer of the Refugee Realities podcast series. In this series, students from the course on refugees and forced migration here at the LSE bring us interviews with a range of people on the topic, covering the policies and politics that shape asylum to the lived experiences of refugees themselves. In this episode, Valeria and Constantina speak with Julia Ciccoli, co-founder and advocacy director of the NGO Still I Rise. Still I Rise was first founded in 2018 to address the lack of appropriate education services for minor refugees living at the Samos hotspot in Greece. Since then, the organization has opened schools for displaced youth in Syria, Kenya, and Turkey. Constantina Merzani and Valeria Miglio are both master's students in the International Development and Humanitarian Emergencies program at the LSE. Constantina was born and raised in Greece and has a BA in politics and IR from the University of York. Her primary research interests include refugee rights and protection in Southern Europe and the Middle East. Valeria is originally from Italy and has previously completed a BA in politics and IR from the University of Nottingham. Her main research interests include durable solutions and refugee settlements. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi to everyone listening, I'm Valeria Miglio. And I'm Costantina Mirzani. And we're students at the International Development Department here at the LSE, and together we're hosting today's podcast. So this episode is part of a series which started from DB462, a course on forced migration and refugees that we were both attending this year. And our main aim throughout this is to expand our understanding of refugee-related issues, especially by exploring non-academic perspectives. In this episode in particular, we'll be focusing on the provision of education services in emergency refugee situations, as well as in protracted crises. So here with us, we have Julia Ciccoli, Programs and Advocacy Director and Co-Founder of the NGO Still I Rise. Julia, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you for having me. Not a problem. And would you like to briefly introduce yourself and what your organization does? Sure. My name is Julia. I'm Italian. Together with other colleagues, we started off Still I Rise an NGO in 2018. We started on Samos in Greece. That was because Samos is one of five Greek islands that are basically the border of Europe. They're really close to Turkey. And over the past few years, they've seen a huge influx of asylum seekers crossing over. And since the EU-Turkey deal of 2016, most of these people are basically stuck on these tiny islands in, in horrifying conditions in so-called hotspots, waiting for their asylum process to, to go through. So we started there basically out of need, and we decided to focus on education for children. That's because nobody else was doing it. So getting, I mean, we worked in Europe, so we expected migrant children to go to public school, as is their right. Unfortunately, that wasn't happening and still isn't. And whereas most the funding for NGO when it comes to education is for primary school, because funding is already very little when it comes to education, and most of it goes to uh, primary school ages, uh, there was absolutely no education available or psychosocial support for children uh, of middle school and high school age, so roughly 12 to 17 years old. 
So we started there again out of need, and then we expanded our operations. And uh, right now we've opened three schools. We have obviously uh, the one on Samos still standing. Uh, then we are in Northwest Syria near Idlib in Adana and in uh, Nairobi, Kenya uh, right now. However, we work with different programs depending on the country. So whereas Samos and Syria are more uh, informal education and psychosocial support, in Kenya, which is quite a stable country with a high influx of refugees, then we provide a long-term quality education and we are we set up an international school providing the IB certificate to students. Thank you so much, Julia. I want to ask you, from your experience, how do you think that education can contribute to the experience of refugees? You, you explain why your organization chose to provide education instead of other forms of assistance. How do you think this is important? I mean, education is a human right. It is very odd for me uh, in 2021 to be campaigning for the right to education. We we should know better. We should know uh, what education means. Obviously, education is a key to a future everywhere, not just for refugees, but for, for people worldwide. For us, the choice to focus on education was because the way we operate is not just we have a container and three times a week you come in one hour and have English classes. For us, a school or a youth center, whatever you want to call it, is a safe place first, especially for children who are not safe outside of school. So already, you know, with the COVID pandemic in normal contexts, so in normal schools, let's say for, for European citizens, we have seen how hard for students and for children it's been to be out of school. Imagine what that's like for children living in horrifying living conditions in a camp, in a place that is not their home, with language they don't understand, with the hope that, you know, they've made it to Europe and then they they were finally going to be safe. So for us, obviously, we provide the best quality education we can, uh, but our schools and centers are also mostly a safe space for children. Uh, We have child specialists supporting them, but also When you set up an education program, you always have to think, if kids are hungry, will they come to school? If their family is too poor and they can't put food on the table, a 12-year-old is going to go to work. I can provide all the education I want, but this child needs to work to to provide for, for their family. So we try to make sure we cover the needs so that our students can come to school. That depends, obviously, on the context, but it might be providing food, for example. It might be providing uh, NFIs, so not food items that can be clothes or hygiene items, or it can mean provide transportation because maybe our students live away from our center and they either can't walk that far or by walking they're at risk of kidnapping or other issues. So we always try to cover all the bases to make sure that children can access education and are in the mindset to do so. So you spoke about sort of the barriers that children often come to when accessing education and one of the things that came up when we were studying this course on forced migration was that increasingly refugees are living in urban centers rather than sort of more formalized camps. How you've experienced this difference from working in Kenya and Syria on the one hand and working in Samos on the other, are there any major differences that you've encountered in doing that? 
So this is a complicated question because every context we work in is incredibly different. So it is very important before you start operations anywhere that you deeply understand the context you're in. So when it comes to Samos, it's Europe and it's people from many different countries. So it's not a group uh, from an area or a religion or a language or whatever we have children from so many different countries who are stuck on this very tiny island basically for political reasons so they they didn't choose to to stay there they are forced to be there and it's a very strange context because obviously you have european life going on in town like anything we're used to it's a greek island but in town, there is also this camp that is literally 50 meters from, from this town center uh, where people are stuck in horrifying conditions for extended periods of times. So there, the proximity helps because the children can walk to school. And now they're planning on opening a new camp on the island very soon, which will be further away and kind of in the middle of nowhere. So that will make things trickier. But in terms of access, we have never had issues of, for example, parents not wanting the children to go to school or uh, the children being forced to work because, again, they are basically pawns in a political system of asylum. So all they can do is just sit there and wait. They're, they have no agency. They can't just try and get a job or starting a life. They are on hold their lives are just there waiting and obviously the either if, even if their children alone they want to learn they came for that they exactly came uh, to Europe thinking they could build a better future for themselves obviously in Adana the situation is different um, most of our students and I don't think people talk about this a lot when it comes to Syria but most of our students have been displaced internally five or six times because every time there is an attack, so they move somewhere else, then maybe feels like the situation is better, then they go back. So a lot of our students either had very, very interrupted education, not because the parents didn't want to send them to school, but because they had to keep moving all the time and they, and they still are. So obviously the situation there is very dire and the camps most of our students live in are completely self-organized. So there are a few camps that are managed by, you know, international organizations and have slightly better living conditions, but it's very few in the area. So with those students, obviously transportation is key. And yes, it's a changing community. So far for the past year, it's been quite stable though, because of the ceasefire, obviously ceasefire doesn't mean that there are no bombs, there, there are uh, constant attacks and bombs, but it's still not as bad as, as it used to be. So there, I'm not saying it's easier, but the, the community, you know, in a span of a year, let's say it's more stable. Nairobi, it's a whole other thing. Uh, Madare has been here for years and it's, yeah, an informal settlement, but it's basically always been here and people have been born, raised and lived here their whole life. Yes, obviously there are also refugees in, in Nairobi. We obviously, you know, in, in Syria, it's Syrians. It, on Samos, our students are from everywhere. Here, it's 50% Kenyans and 50% uh, refugees, so from many different countries. 
So when you go to a community, you need to be respectful of that. So you can just show up and be like, hey, I'm here, come to us. So it's very important that you create connections first and that you understand if your project will be useful in that context. And if it won't be, try to adapt it to the context. So what are the needs? What do local people, what does the community want and need? And then obviously build it together with them. So, so far this has really worked. It's a constant change and obviously constant discussions with staff members, with communities, with students, with their parents and uh, trying to be useful. But every context is different. There is no blanket rule that works everywhere. What you're just saying now connects very well with some of the topics we did this year in our module uh, localization. So I want to ask you, does your organization work with any local organizations or any local networks that helps you build this trust? Yeah, so our goal is our students' well-being and their education. So obviously what we can provide ourselves, we will. But it's really important to get connected with others in the community you work in. So, for example, when it comes to maybe more specialized psychosocial support, if you have connections with other groups, with other organizations or municipalities, it, it really depends on the context that provide this service. Then we do everything we can, you know, to build a relationship so that we can refer our students or staff to them. And the same happens for every other need. For example, on Samos, there are many organizations providing different things, so uh, filling different gaps and coordination with them for us it's, it's fundamental and the other way around so we often get referrals for them maybe uh, lawyers have specific case of a family and there is a particularly vulnerable child so they refer uh, the child to us uh, this is key obviously as always we we do the best we can and we always will but for the best interest uh, of our students we need to make sure we can uh, support them as much as possible also uh, thanks to a network and, uh, and other organizations or stakeholders. You were mentioning when you were speaking beforehand about the fact that in Samos, the camp there and the situation is there is largely a political issue. And we know that sort of humanitarian and development organizations are increasingly working in contexts where uh, migration is highly politicized and they're often being treated as like a local security threat. And I know your organization has often stood up for human rights abuses by local authorities. And I was wondering if you experienced any backlash by the authorities themselves. Yeah, everybody does. In Europe, we work in Greece. So obviously we talk about the Greek context and we bring cases to court against uh, the Greek government. That being said, this is a Europe-wide I don't want to say campaign or propaganda, but it's the, the system they have in place. So if you look at Italy as well, there is a criminalization of, of organizations. It's the, the rhetoric of managing migration as a security issue. So the more you dehumanize people and they are portrayed in the news, you only see them, you know, on these dinghies and uh, drowning uh, and the average say European sees them as others as non-human because maybe they have a different skin color or religion or whatever and if the only time you hear about uh, people coming is 
they are coming to us. There is a security threat. We need to protect our borders. There are irregular migrants. The language they use, like Frontex, the European border guard, they keep talking about irregular migrants. And when this happens for a long time, that's that's all you see. You see migrants coming in irregularly, where in practice they are people like us. And obviously nobody's saying, oh, we should open borders everywhere and uh, have it a chaos. But these are people looking for safety and seeking asylum is a human right enshrined in so many conventions. So everywhere in Europe, governments are breaking the law constantly. Even now, I don't know if you uh, are following the situation in Ceuta, in, uh, between Morocco, they just have these bilateral agreements sending everybody back. In Greece, the past year, there have been constant illegal and violent pushbacks by the Greek Coast Guard towards Turkey. Don't even let me start with Croatia and Bosnia. So they are the criminals. They are the ones not following the law. And then you have uh, non-government organizations stepping in to provide basic decency so search and rescue if you know the sea and somebody is drowning at sea you rescue them is as easy as that (laughs) apparently uh, not anymore for us if i have children alone that are completely neglected and being bitten by rats every night i will take you to court because no right of the child is being respected in that hotspot I will speak out, and it shouldn't be me. Uh, We are just civil organizations. It should be governments. Governments are supposed to protect and promote human rights, but they're constantly breaking them. So then the rhetoric becomes that most organizations, especially in search and rest, they're just called out as mugglers because you save people's lives at sea. Uh, for us, when it comes to Samos, uh, um, our president, Nicolò, who is also the legal representative for, for Civil Rights, has to go to court on really made up charges, it's, it's all we can say, over fireworks that we had for a, for a celebration in our school that we bought, we asked the ones that are safe, it's a school for children, no permission, just to be safe. He went to ask permission to the firefighters, to the police, to everyone, because we didn't want an issue. And then the police officer just lies in their statement. And okay, fine, we're not talking about smuggling charges, but also it means that our lawyer has to work on this. It means that we need to give out testimonies. And if he is convicted of something that is absolutely insane, then there is a criminal record that can hinder funding or registration in countries because the founder representative needs to have a clean record and all of this. So it's all these obstacles in the way of civil society that for a democracy is absolutely insane. We, we talk about Europe you know, as the, the land of human rights and, and democracy and civil society participation. And then normal people like us are the one who end up being human rights defenders, but simply because the authorities that are supposed to do that don't. And then you also have to face challenges on a personal level because, I mean, nobody wants to be taken to court, especially in another country. But what else can we do? I mean, we can't just keep witnesses what we witness every day. 
and not do anything. And when it comes, for example, to pushbacks, these illegal pushbacks have been going on for over a year. There is plenty of evidence and all the evidence is being gathered by NGOs or journalists. And it's been over a year where there are strong, strong, there is strong evidence that Frontex is, is involved as well, not just the Greek Coast Guard. And still the European Commission, they, yeah, sure, internal investigation that clearly brought, no, no, nothing wrong happened with us. They were supposed to have human rights monitoring officers they have not hired them. I think they hired one now who's going to start next month. So this is the situation in Europe and it's getting worse and worse and worse. The pandemic obviously uh, only put an accelerator on, on all of this. So to summarize, it's, it's hard. It shouldn't be us, but if not us, who else at this point? So me personally coming from Greece, I'm I'm really aware of all the things you talked about and how the government is criminalizing humanitarian aid. So you kind of spoke about it, but does this criminalization of humanitarian aid affect your everyday provision of services in the island? I know in some other occasions, the local community is resisting against NGOs and their attentions. Have you experienced something like that? Yeah, so it's, it's not easy, the context on the Greek islands, uh, and it doesn't just apply to us, Samos, but, but to all the Greek islands. To answer this question, it's fair to go into details, because Greek re the residents of these five islands were absolutely incredible in 2014, 2015, even beginning 2016. Kind of out of the blue, these are not that big islands and quite far away from mainland Greece. And they had to face people crossing every single day in the hundreds with absolutely no support. So everybody on this island gave everything. They, we had scenes at the port with just people doing CPR, these women waking up at six, cooking food for 600 people every day out of their own pocket. Everybody I know on Samos gave out their clothes, blankets, whatever, because the state was not there and big organizations as well were not there. So they really gave it all out, thinking probably uh, the state will, will come in and will fix this. Like This is unmanageable. We are a tiny island. We cannot deal with, with all of this. But the result was the EU-Turkey deal. So basically sacrificing these islands in the name of border security, because obviously if you block people on an island that, you know, per se, you can't really leave, that would uh, keep people there. The, the reasoning was they, they do the process there and then they're moved on to, to mainland Greece or deported back. But in practice, it meant keeping people for months and years, just waiting for an answer in, in horrifying living conditions. And within the local population, things went, you know, it was a slow process, but understandably so, locals started being fed up because it's their island and obviously tourism went down in all those islands. You have scenes that are, you would like not from Europe, you, you walk around and you see kids roaming through dustbins uh, looking for food. You, you have people walking around with no shoes and 
obviously their crime has also increased out of need because maybe you put your clothes out to dry and they're gone because somebody gets them because they have no clothes. And when it comes to organizations, obviously every organization is different, but the rhetoric is that organizations are there for the money, you know? So they understand, like, you know, if I put myself in the eyes of a local, I see nothing has changed in the past five years, but things keep getting worse and worse. I see all these organizations there and I'm like, okay, what are you really doing? You know, because you're not changing anything and probably you're just here to, to get your salary. And I understand that. But obviously, I wish we had the power to change things. It, it would be my dream to close our center on Samos because all the children in the camp are going to Greek school or are being moved to other EU states or, or Greek mainland. Until that happens and people are still there, we will continue working. So it becomes difficult, obviously, to work in this context. For us, I feel safe when it comes to locals, less so with police or authorities. But I think if you get the community to, to know you and know what you do and also show the impact of what you do, then people will understand. But it's a constant dialogue. And especially when you have all this rhetoric coming from, from Greek media about how NGOs are stealing money and NGOs are smugglers and they are there because uh, they want to get their huge uh, salaries and, and paychecks. And that's what people listen to every single day. Your work becomes harder and harder. Samos has been less difficult than Lesbos, but on Lesbos you had locals attacking humanitarian workers and NGOs as well as refugees. It is not easy and still you are seen as an outsider and sure there are risks, but at the same time I don't feel uh, like saying, oh my god, the Greek locals are terrible. If I put myself in their shoes, I would probably follow the same process. Do you feel like that within all of this are you getting enough support by the humanitarian system? I'm especially thinking about big organizations. Do you feel like there's more that could be done or that there's some sort of protection gap that like smaller NGOs are having to fill? So talking about Greece and the big organizations to me would be UNHCR and IOM. So these organizations are funded by the European Union. Their mandate is supporting the Greek government when it comes to migration. So maybe if you're not in the, say, humanitarian work system, you think UN agencies for refugees like UNHCR, they are the ones looking after refugees or in charge of refugees. In the Greek context, they aren't. The Greek government is in charge with funding from European Union, European Commission, and with these NGOs supporting. The thing is that they can't go against the Greek government because they're there in support. So IOM, for example, is building walls around structures in mainland Greece. These are not hotspots. These are camps that are meant for people to, once you're transferred from the island, if you're still waiting for, for an answer, they just transfer you to these camps that are often in the middle of nowhere, huge issues and so on. But these 
I'm not saying they're permanent places because hopefully when you get a protection status, then you can move on with your life. But we have students that have lived in those camps for at least two years and they are building huge walls and barbed wire around it. And this is like your money or they support the voluntary repatriation scheme where they basically send people back. Same goes for UNHCR. They support the Greek government. So the Greek government asks and they provide So although then, you know, there is an advocacy uh, at at different levels or and so on, but when it comes to pushbacks, for example, again, it's not only an illegal and criminal practice, but it's incredibly dangerous. There so many people have died because of this. And the fact that it's been over a year and a half with plenty of evidence and the European commission or council or whatever has not done anything it means that this is what Europe wants you know so even if then they come out with statements I'm talking about especially the commissioner Johnson saying oh yeah these are I received reports this is worrisome we should investigate you've had a year and a half to do that so that that becomes complicated but yes grassroots organizations have filled gaps Uh, We started out as one uh, and we have decided to not just do that because there are always needs and you can always feel needs. But then our students are and have been completely deprived of all their rights for years. And sure, I can keep giving out clothes, but there has to be structural change. So I'd rather speak out for what is happening and for their rights to be respected or at least try Uh, than, you know, just filling in gaps. So, Julia, I think in all the contexts you operate, the situation has been going on for years now. So maybe in, like, for example, Samos or Syria, maybe it started as an emergency situation, but it has been going on. So how do you achieve a balance between providing this, like, short-term humanitarian relief to the refugees and a longer-term support and trying to achieve development in those contexts? Yeah, for us, we never do short. I think this is one of the issues with uh, humanitarian aid that it's mostly linked to funding. So you get funding for maybe three months or six months and you never know if funding will get extended. And obviously that doesn't give you the freedom to plan uh, long-term or to start projects that might have a long-term impact. So Samos is different because we we don't know and people don't decide when they leave. They are just waiting there and then the government decides whether they can move forward to uh, either, again, other European states, uh, if it's unaccompanied minors or mainland Greece or deported. So one day they come to us and they say, hey, tomorrow I'm getting transferred. We, we still remain there, but our students change all the time because of this. In Syria, uh, we don't provide formal education. Our goal is always for children to be able to go to formal school, so government school in the country they reside in. We support them uh, getting there, but th- there can be external circumstances that change our operations, but we don't approach our projects by saying, oh, I'm gonna, you know, give out food for three months and then who, who, who knows? When it comes to education, I mean, the plan is to have children for a long time. And that is exactly what we do in Nairobi. Our program is a seven-year program that then leads to 
like high school degree, uh, a diploma that is recognized so that that students can go to university or continue their lives. So it is always long-term for us. The needs might change because the context might change. So it's important that you're very flexible and that you make sure your students will continue coming to school. So either we meet the needs ourselves or through referrals to other organizations and so on, we try to fully support the child and the family so that they can continue their education. So you mentioned being dependent on funding, of course, as an NGO, and I imagine the current pandemic is putting a lot of strain on the humanitarian system in general and on NGOs as well. And I was wondering how these humanitarian challenges that are coming up, how have they impacted your school throughout the pandemic? Yeah, it's been tough on all levels. Um, first level was planning. Uh, we obviously had a plan. We were supposed to open our school in Turkey and after move on to, uh, to Nairobi. And the pandemic in Turkey was, it still is quite hard. Schools were closed for a very, very long period of time. We thought we could open again in summer and then got shut down again. We had to, you know, replan completely everything we had in mind. But the most difficult part is that our students cannot stay home. For them, their home is a tent or a shack. They cannot protect themselves uh, from the virus because, again, they live in overcrowded camps. In Syria, they don't have money for food, let alone money for masks. So the constant opening, closing, opening, closing, it's, it's really hard because not only these children are missing out on their education, but they're missing out on everything. We, in all projects, tried everything we could. So still maybe providing food through food packs. Uh, um, giving in, in Kenya here, we gave out tablets so that kids could continue uh, their distance learning on Samos. We, Samos has lots of issues like electricity. The, the children living in the jungle don't have electricity. So power banks, uh, charging them, topping them up with internet. But then often is you know, one phone for family. So maybe the dad is using the phone, so they miss out on the, on the lesson. But psychologically, it's been incredibly, incredibly devastating for all these kids because they are just stuck, scared of, of getting coronavirus. And so many of them did in the Samos hotspot, for example. They basically planned nothing for them, just kept them locked in where social distancing is basically impossible. So obviously you have cases that keep popping up. So it's been heartbreaking. We we try, obviously, you know, we have to respect the law. So if government say schools are closed, they're closed. And we really did everything to, to try and support anyway. We'll see how the pandemic goes. It's been incredibly, incredibly tough, but we've always tried to do everything we could. I think this brings us to the end of this podcast. Touched on some very interesting points about the important role of education and the role it can play for refugee livelihoods. Thank you again, Julia, for being with us today and sharing some insightful information from your experience. If those listening want to stay updated on your work, where can they find more about Still Arise? Thank you for having us. Yeah, you can follow us on our social media on Facebook and Instagram. Otherwise, the website is stillirisengeo.org. Thank you so much, Julia. And we really hope all those problems we talked about and all these barriers will be solved and your work really has a big impact. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. And thank you for having me.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Refugee Realities podcast series, hosted by the Department of International Development at the LSE. We have more episodes on the way, so please do stay tuned.